0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Coming up today, a conversation with Paul Holton, who as a member of the Utah National Guard, military intelligence, had uh, interesting experiences in Iraq, several deployments there, and can provide us with uh, interesting perspective on the events unfolding there right now. We'll also be talking about his experiences outlined in his book, Uh, Collateral kindness. As a loving father, Paul Holton found it hard to reconcile his innate goodwill with his role as an interrogator for the Army National Guard in Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Till one day, deep in Iraqi territory, surrounded by the horrors of war, he realized how he could make a small but significant difference in the lives of the children all around him. On impulse, he began asking friends and family to send him little things like toys and toothbrushes to share with children devastated by deadly conflicts. From that small gesture, his efforts have grown into an international humanitarian organization, Operation Give, that now blesses children across the globe. Paul Holton, uh, as a member of the Utah National Guard, has been deployed to the Middle East several times, including during Operation Desert Storm and during Operation Iraqi Freedom. And he's author of uh, his experiences there in Operation Iraqi Freedom. The book is called Collateral Kindness. It's out from Cedar Fort Press. And Paul Holton joins us from South Korea, where he is deployed uh, for another week or so, I guess. Uh, so, a very interesting book, uh, "Collateral Kindness." Um, let me let me start with a little bit of your biography. You say in your introduction you enlisted in the army in 1970 to avoid Correct. Vietnam. So, so what happened? You 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 spent your life in the in the army, in the National Guard. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I got in for uh, you know I had a choice back when we uh, they drew my number and I, I had to make a decision to either go to Vietnam or or enter the National Guard. So I joined the Guard, and I just never got out. So I've been in, in every since uh, for the last 44 some years.
0: By the way, we appreciate you staying up late. Uh, you're joining us from South Korea, so I, I think that is
1: correct. It's. Uh, little after 12, midnight here.
0: Yeah, yeah, 13 hours ahead. And you're in South Korea. You're deployed there.
1: That's correct, yes.
0: Uh, with the National Guard, you're, you're in military intelligence?
1: Uh, I have been for the last, you know, 40-plus years, but right now I'm actually working in, in what is called the Korean Battle Simulation Center, and I'm the operations officer.
0: And you told me earlier today uh, you're retiring, coming up pretty quick.
1: Yeah, in just a, a few days, actually, I in that now I've hit 62, that uh, that dreaded age, and I'm now no longer of age to be in the military. So, on the 30th of June, that'll be my last day, and I'll be returning back to Salt Lake City.
0: So, they're I guess you would stay, they're aging you out.
1: That's that's correct. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, well, there must be some elements of it that you really love. You you've stayed all these years, and sounds oh, like yeah. you enjoy. Oh yeah, I.
1: Mean, I have no regrets, and I've, it's been an incredible ride I and mean, journey. I mean, I've done some just incredible things, and I've had some wonderful experiences. So it's really been fantastic.
0: Now, you've been deployed to the Middle East, specifically Iraq, several times, uh, Operation Desert Storm, Operation Iraqi Freedom. And uh, so first, before we get into some of the specific story, your experiences from your book, um, the events unfolding now in Iraq must be of special interest to you.
1: Uh, Yes, absolutely. I still have a lot of uh, friends over there and and people that I stay in touch with and uh, our main contacts that we've been working with for many years as we've been sending uh, humanitarian supplies over there for the children and other people. So uh, I'm definitely in touch with all these folks that we know over there uh, via email. I'm still in touch with some of the generals actually that I interrogated. Back in two thousand three, we've been, we became friends, and we've continued to stay in touch over the years. So, I continue to, you know, ask them questions about what's going on and whether or not they're in danger, and and in fact, many of them are in danger. So, I, I am very concerned.
0: These generals, it's a very interesting. Past in the book, you became friends with some, several that you interrogated. Um, did they? stay in politics. Of course, that part of Saddam Hussein's regime, or at least serving the army uh, under him, I don't know, would have it, it made them persona non grata, or what uh, did they stay involved?
1: Well, not really. Uh, there were a couple of them that ended up getting some positions in the police department, not necessarily in the military. Uh, a couple of them that I know of were killed shortly after uh, several have fled Iraq uh, because of the dangers and the fact that uh, Iranian spies that were in the country were actually hunting them down, and so they fled to other countries. Uh, but and most of them are just retired at this point and have never been reengaged.
0: Uh, so I, I guess uh, probably to a man, these these would have been these generals would be Sunni.
1: Well, they were a mixture of both okay. uh, mm-hmm. Sh- Shiites and, you know, and Sunnis. Uh,
0: I wonder uh, there, there's a passage in in the book where you've had a long day and and you probably are feeling some emotions that a lot of soldiers over there have felt or do feel. Um, you're interrogating a a gentleman by the name of Hazam. And then, his, right. and then Then you start interrogating his boss, and his boss is angry at you that you are not expressing trust in him immediately. And then you go on in, right. in your book to uh, to talk about the great uh, personal sacrifices so many Americans are making, and many Iraqis, uh, so that the Iraqis could have benefits of freedom. Uh, and and you, you say, this guy had the nerve to say we're not doing enough. I guess he expressed that. That must be... Uh, you, you must have some mixed emotions along those lines with Iraq seemingly falling apart at this point.
1: Yes, a- absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it, it pains me and it, well, it hurts me, and, uh, and I am very still very emotionally involved because of the amount of time and effort and money and lives that we've, you know, basically uh, sacrificed in order for them to have freedom and to have democracy. And and so it's quite disturbing. Uh, we'd, we'd hate to have to you know look back and say it was all for naught, you know, and especially the lives that were lost. Uh, and perhaps some of that is, you know, we caused some of that because of our withdrawal and the vacuum that was created. Maybe it gave, you know, created an opportunity for Enemies to seep in and and start to raise you know havoc there.
0: You think maybe the U.S. withdrew a little too fast?
1: Well, I do personally. Uh, I, I think you know, in in looking back at history, whenever we've gone in and occupied in in some way a country like that after a conflict, that we we left in place a security element uh, to maintain stability in the country and. and you know, we didn't do that. What do you think? And so, uh,
0: what do you think could be done now?
1: Well, it's it, it's a challenging situation, um, and definitely we need to know what side we're on, and and it's kind of a, it's a perhaps a lose lose. I don't know if it's, there's any win win here. So, um, I don't know. I don't. I'm I'm not the smart guy in the room mm-hmm. with all the answers as far as what's the solution. So.
0: Do you do you keep in touch with uh, fellow soldiers from Operation Iraqi Freedom and you know et cetera, to, to to maybe put a finger on the on the pulse of their opinion on this? Is there a sort of oh, a ab- general absolutely. opinion?
1: Absolutely, I continue to correspond and stay in touch with the, many of those that I served with, and and they've all you know responded with similar uh, emotions and thoughts about. Uh, and, and some a little stronger than others about that it was our fault, you know, or we should have done something knowing that this was going to happen. I mean, this isn't a surprise mm-hmm. for most of us that served there. Uh, this is, could have been predicted years ago that this would happen so uh,
0: but you I think you you believed in and do just continue to believe in in the cause there, there, Of course, there's mixed opinion back in the us. But uh, as you write in your book, you, you feel like this was the right thing for the U.S. to go in.
1: I, I do, and did at the time. And, and in retrospect, maybe I, I, I've learned more about perhaps there, there might have been other ways. But at the time, and, and just once I got there on, gra- on the ground, uh, boots on the ground, and I was able to meet the people, I mean, that's what convinced me we were there to really help them, because there were a lot of good people that weren't all caught up in, in either side of the conflict of as far as the uh, whether they were Sunni or Shiite or whether they used to be pro-Saddam or whatever, but they were just good people trying to provide for their families and, and they believed in us and they wanted us to help them be successful in this effort. So from that standpoint, it was a very good thing.
0: You also write in the book, uh, and this is an opinion I've heard expressed a, a lot from soldiers on the ground. That uh, what you hear about Iraq is blood and and you know terror, but the right. story that's not hasn't been told is the personal stories of the Iraqis and especially the, those Iraqis who were very grateful for for the U.S. and allies going in.
1: Right, and that was probably the majority of just the everyday person. The majority of them were very appreciative and very receptive and and constantly thanking us and expressing that appreciation directly to us for our efforts, for being there, for freeing them. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it made us all uh, convinced that, that we really were doing the right thing for the people. Uh, especially when we saw their conditions, especially when we saw the condition and the neglect that the children had experienced. And uh, so, yeah, your heart just went out to them automatically and wanted to help them in any way.
0: So you must be concerned about friends you have in Iraq, as you've you've said before. Do you keep in contact with any of them, especially lately?
1: Yeah, and I I have heard through... uh, I stay in touch with this one individual that has connections with a couple of the main sheikhs, sheikhs that I worked with. And uh, they both had to flee their homes with their families to find refuge somewhere else. They haven't left the country, but they're in safer areas. Their homes have been destroyed by the insurgents, the militants that have moved into the the Mosul area, I'm sure we've all heard on the news how Mosul was taken, and they lived uh, not far from there. So they've been targeted because of their involvement and with the U.S. military and with the current government. Uh, I worked with them extensively there, and we did a lot of really wonderful things. But So I'm concerned for their safety.
0: Now, this is just extraordinary. A group ISIS, or I've heard it called ISIL, that's uh, even yes. looked looked on askance by Al Qaeda as being beyond the pale. This is a pretty fierce group that's uh, advancing.
1: Right, and I've I've read the news, you know, also, and and read up on on what ISIS or ISIL is doing, and yeah, it's very disturbing and. To, to think that they if you would want to call him a ringleader was in our custody uh, that's even more disturbing so hmm.
0: so uh, you were not in Afghanistan but I wonder what your feelings are with with uh, the US Allied forces slowly drawing down in Afghanistan
1: well I'm I'm in favor of the drawdown um, I don't know how good we are at this nation building we're attempting and we've thrown a lot of money at these at these countries uh, in hopes of creating you know new systems and new structure and and everything but uh, i mean that's really not the military's mission and perhaps we're not the best at it so i i do believe that it's important to bring our troops home but yet i do believe that some type of stability force needs to stay there to, you know, secure the gains we have made and and hopefully prevent the same thing from happening in Afghanistan that's now happening in Iraq.
0: We're gonna take a brief break. We'll be back with Paul Holton. He is a member of the Utah National Guard. He's a chief warrant officer. Um, and he was deployed several times to Iraq. Um, And, of course, uh, various other areas around the world. Right now, he's uh, in South Korea, uh, just finishing up his uh, career, which will be ending in the military in uh, just about a week. And his book, a very interesting book about his experiences during Operation Iraqi Freedom, uh, is called Collateral Kindness. We're going to be talking about uh, how he saw a need, especially among Iraqi children, and tried to fill that need. He says, "My first deployment to the Middle East introduced me to the scorching desert, Saddam Hussein, scorpions in my boots, blistering sandstorms, and inedible MREs." But it did not prepare, prepare me for Iraq. I'm continually asked the curious and by the curious and inquisitive, "So, what was it really like in Iraq?" My answer: My experience in Iraq was magical. We'll have Paul Holton explain that following this break. It's like a game for composers.
2: Take a simple tune, come up with as many twists on that tune as possible. Theme and variations. Composers have been having fun with it for centuries. We'll have fun with variations by Rachmaninoff, Bach, Bernstein, and piano variations by Haydn on the next Performance Today from APM. Wednesday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Get your creative juices flowing. Utah Public Radio wants you to design the next UPR coffee mug. Draw, paint, photograph, or even quilt your way to the top design as voted on by UPR listeners. What could be cooler than having your artistic creation enshrined forever on the side of a public radio mug? Simply create a design that reflects your interpretation or appreciation of UPR. The entry deadline is Monday, January 26th at 10 a.m. For ideas or for more information, Go to
0: upr.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities, online at utahumanities.org.
2: The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org,
0: or on our Facebook page, or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah thanks for listening to access U Time tom williams as a loving father paul holton found it hard to reconcile his innate goodwill with his role as an interrogator for the army national guard in iraq around 2003 operation iraqi freedom till one day deep in iraqi territory surrounded by the horrors of war he realized how he could make a small but significant difference in the lives of children all around him on impulse he began asking friends and family to send him little things like toys toothbrushes to share with children devastated by deadly conflicts and from that small je- gesture his efforts have grown into an international humanitarian organization operation give paul holton joins us from his latest deployment in south korea where we're grateful that he's staying up late. It's the midnight hour for him. And uh, you can join this conversation, if you'd like, at upraxcess at gmail.com, Upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, his book is, it's out from uh, Cedar Fort Press, it's called uh, Collateral Kindness. So Paul Holton uh, read a, a quote from the book. Let me read it again, have you respond. You say that your first deployment to the Middle East introduced you to scorching desert, Saddam Hussein, scorpions in your boots, blistering sandstorms, and inedible MREs. And uh, so when people ask you, so what was it really like in Iraq, your answer is, my experience in Iraq was magical. And you go on to write that people are a bit curious as to that response. Uh, explain that.
1: Oh, you bet. Um... Excuse me. Again, I appreciate this opportunity to talk with you. So, um, you know, you automatically expect uh, the worst when you're going to a war in a war zone. You already expect it to be difficult and to have all the hardships of life in the military and and in the desert. But uh, I didn't expect that I would fall in love with the people. And make such a strong uh, bond and connection with the children, and and I call it it was magical because so many just incredible miracles and very you know actually very spiritual experiences I, I had while serving in the military, and, and that and thus the name of the book being collateral kindness as as a result of being in the war uh, and in that conflict I was able to do a lot of uh, humanitarian work. I was the recipient of a lot of kindness from the Iraqi people that frequently invited me into their home, in their homes for dinner and for meals, and we got together frequently, and I, I met all their children, um, and just the love they expressed, and the amount of things that I was able to do from a humanitarian standpoint the the schools that I went to and that we were able to do just some amazing things with the children, providing supplies. Uh, We went to hospitals, orphanages, went to, uh, you know, just all kinds of places where you would just into neighborhoods where we would drive this bus I had and throw toys out the window and, and just the throng of children that would come out and chase after the bus to get a a little stuffed animal so uh, tell
0: that's me about a long answer, I, well, I that, <laughs> no that's that's fine uh, tell me about the, there's a little girl who had an especially big influence on you uh her I guess you're admitting people one at a time or small groups her mother was let through and not her she's crying
1: right well that that's what really started it all was this experience that I had with this little child who was you know, we were at the, inside the green zone, and uh, we were waiting at the gate for some other people, and I just happened to uh, see this little child crying, and uh, her crying uh, caught my attention. And I motioned for her to come forward so that uh, my interpreter could ask her why she was crying, and and she went... F- she jumped into this story, and she had been separated from her mom, and her mom was actually standing behind me, and she had already been let in through the gate, and uh, so they would just been separated. And we brought her in, and at that moment, I, I, I just remembered that back at of the office, some of my coworkers at FedEx, where I was working, had sent me some toys. So I had the guards uh, keep the little girl with her mom there and I ran to the office to grab a few things and came back and it was when I was able to actually kneel down and one by one I handed this little child uh, a toothbrush and some flip-flops and it was this stuffed monkey with the long arms and velcro hands that I put around her neck at that moment uh, I just had such uh, a feeling, such a, it impacted me so that I wanted to continue doing that uh, I received such joy with just in seeing her, the expression on her face. So I uh, ran back that evening and typed on my blog that, you know, I kind of tried to describe what had happened and I asked people to send st- stuffed animals and additional toys and things for children so that I could do that every day that I came in contact with a child. And, and that's what started the whole thing of Operation Give. and. Thousands and thousands of boxes of toys and stuffed animals arrived, so many that at one point the military mail system, I actually got a letter from the Pentagon, a cease and desist letter <laughs> saying you've got to stop having people send things because it's clogging up the whole system. And, and so then we figured out other ways to, uh, to ship these things. There were so many
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think you got the help from businesses and, and such. Uh, th-
1: this is yeah, FedEx actually paid yeah. for the first few container loads to be shipped over.
0: This is a, a, a it's a very human impulse to tap into. Um, I wonder. There's a lot of there must be a lot of different reactions to being in a war zone. Um, negative reactions, and I'm talking about uh, in the hearts of soldiers and the way they react to this. Right. Uh, all, ranging to an impulse to reach out the, the, the way you did, and, and others, I'm sure, did as well. I wonder how you can explain those those differences. Is that just human nature?
1: Well, uh, it was, uh, and I think it is. I, I think, you know, I'm not unique in this uh, regard as far as what I did while I was there deployed. There were, you know, hundreds of soldiers doing similar things, in their own little uh, area of interest, you know, and sphere of interest, uh, they were able to reach out to the people. And, and in fact, I was always uh, being asked by other soldiers for items that they could have. And, and that that actually became the mission statement of Operation Give, is that we want to be able to provide things to the individual soldiers so that they in turn can communicate uh love and kindness to those people, the other people they come in contact with, so, and, and, and that's what we're all about. I mean, we were about collecting things that soldiers might be able to distribute um, to the people in need. Uh, and, and So, there were, and continue to be, you know, hundreds of soldiers and thousands of soldiers that that want to do Similar things to give back to the people they're serving and fighting for.
0: Hmm. Does that create, especially for the soldiers in combat? Um, I don't know if that uh, creates a sort of a cognitive dissonance. You could you could call it. <laughs> right. you, you're you're out killing people of necessity. That's your job, but you're also trying to reach out in kindness as well.
1: Yeah, but it's actually very therapeutic. Um, and it it does help put a a kinder face on it. Yeah, because as a soldier, you, you are actually looking for the enemy in an effort to kill them, but you make a distinction for the most part in your mind between the enemy and the everyday person and people, especially when it comes to the children. So definitely you're looking to make some kind of a connection and in fact, on this last deployment, I was in Iraq, 2010-2011. There were soldiers that had been on previous deployments and had such a terrible experience, and so, you know, and had the post-traumatic syndrome, uh, stress syndrome, and and had so many bad experiences that they wanted something positive to take away from that country, and were and came to me and asked for help. You know, What can they do to help? How can they get involved? How can they learn to love the people? Uh, and I think that, that helps. That helps soldiers get past the, the the huge amount of negative experiences they're forced to go through. You
0: yeah, have a scene in the book uh, that I'm sure has played out over and over. Um, you know, if we're not in the military, we don't experience this. But you're at Camp Williams, you're deploying to Iraqi Operation Iraqi Freedom. Um, so, a bunch of young people in your unit, and you're one of the older ones. And right. General Tarbett, who's Adjutant General for the uh, I guess Utah National Guard, he comes right. over and sort of gives you a mission. He says, uh, "He says, Paul, bring these bring these kids home in one piece." And probably I don't know if he says this, but probably it's understood bring them home in one piece emotionally, you know, spiritually as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I do recall that that moment, that instance, uh, where he actually expressed to me also, you know, keep their head in the game and make sure they come home, uh, realizing, that, of course, that it's a, a war zone and it's dangerous. But, yeah, do everything we can do also to help them keep their minds Healthy and strong and straight. So, definitely, that's that's what my mission was all about. It was helping soldiers do things that kind of make made it all worthwhile. That they had some positive experiences along with all the negative. Something that they could hold on to as they came back to reality, um, their reality back here in the states. But yet they had some positive memories.
0: What has the transition been like? Do you, do you keep in touch with members of your unit who were deployed to Iraq?
1: I, I do, and for the most part it's been very good, and most everybody, uh, there are a few exceptions of those that have struggled, um, and I've kind of tried to reach out to some of those, and especially uh, on this last deployment, again, we had some individuals that had struggled from previous deployments. and were suffering as a result with uh, nightmares and other psychological issues. So, but I was able to make um, some progress, and I, I was able to help some of them that were in need that way by just by getting them involved in some of the things that that I was doing. This last deployment was just as incredible as the fir- the second one back in '03, in that. Uh, for the most part, because we weren't actually doing interrogations anymore, um, and we were doing a whole different type of operation. But I got more involved in and in doing micro loans and trying to set up small businesses and and trying to build community and build relationships between the police, the military, and the civilians through humanitarian events as we called them um, where we would bring a community together to go out and provide school supplies to a whole school uh, to build trust and have build that connection they need to gain the support of the civilian populace
0: you're right in the book and this I, I don't know this might be bittersweet uh, yeah I think you the book was published last year right 2013. Right. Um, and we're talking with Paul Holden, author of Collateral Kindness. Uh, here's the quote. There is significant history being forged in Iraq right now. Democracy has been launched. Businesses are opening doors. Capitalism is creating opportunities. Alliances are being formed. Freedom is being tested. That must be very poignant to look back on those, those words from just a year ago, to, given the events right now.
1: Yeah, and it's actually a, a lot is at stake right now, and a lot of— uh, they're risking the whole, that whole thing I just described can be lost um, as a result of this uh, sectarian you know, violence and conflict that's going on, and especially if it reverts back to some fundamentalist uh, concept and philosophy that perhaps they will lose that, that momentum that we had given them in some ways to start. Building some kind of an economy that would sustain their their livelihood, you know, provide a livelihood and sustain their uh, daily efforts. So I'm concerned that maybe there might be uh, some of that lost.
0: By the way, uh, that sectarian divide, uh, at least when you were there, at least you know the the latest deployment, and looking back over previous deployments, that Sunni-Shia right. divide. Does that get overblown in the press? Is that is that as serious as portrayed in the press? Has it worsened?
1: Well, it's definitely worsened. Um, and it's when we were there and uh, and in Iraq, you know, we were able to contain those things uh, and be able to kind of uh, juggle and keep things at somewhat of a status quo and a certain level of stability. But of course uh with and Iran has continued to be the heavy hand and be involved and overly involved perhaps and and there was a tendency for the Shiite government to be somewhat dis- discriminative uh, about towards the Sunnis. So I mean, the tendency was there, and it it was already starting to happen but we didn't do anything to prevent it when we left. So they continued to, you know, it was kind of like payback, because when Saddam was in power, that it was all about the Sunnis, and then when he was, you know, removed, and then it became all about the Shiites, so they became, they were the ones in power, and it was all about them maintaining and having all the good positions. Uh, And so... We didn't push hard enough, perhaps, to get them to share that responsibility and share some of that power to spread it out, so that everybody felt like they were being represented and had a, a part to play. Um, so, and and that was, you know, perhaps Iran's doing that. There was that tendency, and they were already involved when we were there to push out the Sunnis and and have the shiites control everything so the writing was kind of on the wall and it's too bad we didn't uh, force the their the government to spread that out amongst both parties
0: we're talking with paul holden he is uh, chief warrant officer in the uh, In the Utah National Guard, he's currently deployed to uh, South Korea. That's where he's joining us from. We appreciate him staying up late. It's midnight hour for him. Uh, You're welcome to join this conversation at UPRAxis at gmail.com or 1-800-826-1495. Paul Holton's book about his experiences reaching out, especially to the children of Iraq, during his deployment in 2003, during Operation Iraqi Freedom, is called Collateral Kindness. And those experiences led him to uh, create a, an organization called Operation Give. Uh, we'll talk about some of the extraordinary people that Paul Holton met, especially during that time period. Uh, he formed friendships with some of the people that he interrogated. I'll have him talk about an extraordinary person, General Saif, uh, who's in the uh, Iraqi Air Force at the time, and uh, some other stories from that time following this break.
2: Alaska has tough regulations on how and when people can fish, so it has one of the healthiest salmon fisheries in the world.
3: Alaska is the jewel of the world when it comes to fisheries management. This state is second to none.
2: But new mines planned over the border in Canada have fishermen fearing for the future. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah
0: Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crum Brothers Artisan Bread. At 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Featuring lunch, panini salads, sandwiches, and soups, full menu at crumbrothers.com. The
2: following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at UPR.org or on our Facebook page, or on
0: Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Paul Holton, better known as Chief Wiggles. Uh, that's the name of his uh, blog. He's the founder of Operation Give. It's a humanitarian organization that ships school supplies, toys, medical supplies, shoes, clothing, sports equipment to children in war-torn and devastated nations throughout the world, especially where the U.S. military is serving. Paul Holton is finishing up his career in the military. He's stationed in South Korea right now. That's where he joins us from. And his book is called Collateral Kindness. We have another 10 minutes or so left with Paul Holton, and you can join us at Access at gmail.com. Uh, Paul Holton, uh, Chief Wiggles. The chief comes from your rank, What what about Wiggles?
1: Right. Well, uh, when I was actually in third grade, someone, my first name's Paul, and one of my friends said, Paulie Wally Wiggles. And from that day forward, I became known as Wiggles. That was my childhood nickname. And, uh, and, so, and then, of course, when I got into high school, they shortened that up to being Wiggs because that was a little cooler. But uh, when I got to Iraq and I started writing my blog, I couldn't use my real name, and so I, I just kind of put it together—my rank and my childhood nickname—and and became Chief Wiggles, which became very appropriate as I was out and about uh, doing things for kids, you know, children in Iraq.
0: I couldn't use your your real name? The army regulations, or what?
1: Yeah, because I'm a, I was a intel and you know military intelligence officer and. And uh, it's somewhat uh, dangerous, and for others to know maybe who you are and what you're saying, and so. Uh,
0: By the way, I I don't know if you know about the candy bomber. I think Paul Halverson. Oh, sure. Another Utah who's who got into uh, humanitarian work. He he would uh, drop candy from above (laughs) from his airplane. Right. I don't don't know if you feel a bit of a kinship with him. him. uh, I've spoken with him. Okay.
1: And we've kind of, uh, as a result of what what he did, what I've done, and we've kind of uh, connected. So, I'm, I'm he's one of the individuals I hope to see again when I return back to the states. He's he's getting up in years, and uh, so I, I hope he's still around when I'm when I get back.
0: Yeah, oh, well, that that's interesting. I uh, I had made that connection in my mind, but it's it's kind of even better that you gentlemen have met. Right. I wonder if you could tell us about some of the connections you may, made, um, and I I don't know, this this seemed a little strange to me, um, of course I wasn't there, that you formed friendships with some of the generals, say, that you interrogated, and there's one in particular you formed pretty pretty strong bond with, General Saif. What do you tell me about
1: that? Yeah, well, um, you know, when the war started and uh, we moved into with our forces into Iraq, uh, there were a number of generals... That basically surrendered. They they surrendered themselves and their bases and all their soldiers. They didn't follow the directives given to given them by Saddam Hussein. Instead, when they saw us coming, they laid down their weapons and gave up. And specifically, there were 17 generals. Uh, For the most part, all of 17 of those had surrendered. There were three, I think, that hadn't surrendered that we'd actually captured. But for the most part, those that surrendered were very cooperative and very willing to work with us and provide us with information. And given that, those circumstances and given the nature of of their capture, if you will, they uh, the the good approach, you know, building a relationship and building trust and getting them to work with us was the best approach. And uh, and it's only, you know, when you spend, as I did, that amount of time with those individuals that I worked with and, you know, interrogated for six months, that it's, it just would make sense that we would develop this bond that went beyond our rank in the military and our involvement um, as a captor and a prisoner or a, an enemy, and uh, and especially as you mentioned there, uh, the Air Force General General Safe, Safe, um, him and I just we built this incredible bond. And he was very instrumental in helping us uh, and providing us with key bits of information that thwarted uh, the enemy's efforts in many ways. So um, several of those individuals, as I've been able to, I've been able to maintain contact with on this last deployment in 2010. I was able actually to meet with uh, a couple of them up in Mosul, where I was stationed uh, and actually, one of them actually lives in Mosul, and I was able to meet with him on several occasions. So um, it's been It's been a really good thing that we've been able to continue to talk about the current state of things and that he's kind of uh, informed me about what's going on uh, over these last you know it's been ten years now since uh, this we first began these relationships.
0: What, uh, of course, their career in the military probably over at that point, what did they go on to do? Uh,
1: these the, the two that I've made contact with were just retired. Um, I petitioned very strongly that once they were released, that we would try to uh, assimilate them or incorporate them in our efforts in the military and rebuilding the military, but for some reason it fell on deaf ears and... For the most part, they were forgotten, um, even though they had been so instrumental in helping us and so willing to continue to help us. So it was—I was quite saddened by that—that that whole chain of events that happened after their uh, release.
0: Well, the very confusing times, of course, in war—it's fog of war and so forth. How are these? Of course, this is appreciated by by the U.S. and allies that these generals would. Would give up their bases, etc. And I'm sure a lot of Iraqis were just glad to be done with Saddam Hussein. But uh, was this looked on negatively by any of the Iraqis?
1: I didn't sense that in any way. I never heard that that was the case. Uh, their only f- fear was that you know most of them had been. Uh, involved in the Iranian-Iranian-Iraq conflict back in the late 80s, 90s. I forget the dates, but um, so they, they were actually afraid of the Iranian spies that had infiltrated into Iraq and were looking for these generals to kill them uh, as a payback or, or whatever you want to call it. So uh, that's the, that was the concern they expressed to me, and that was the reason several of them ended up leaving Iraq.
0: Mm. Just have a couple minutes left, I want to give you a chance to give people contact information. Uh, tell me what you're yeah. up to with Operation Give at this point. First of all, how, how can people contact Operation Give?
1: The best way is to go to our website at OperationGive.org, uh, and it outlines all the, the projects we're working on, and uh, you can click on my blog. There's a link there, which is you know www.cheapwiggles.com, and on there are my latest entries, which talk about the humanitarian efforts I'm currently involved with here in Korea. As we have been able to reach out to uh, handicapped schools and orphanages, and and all kinds of different homeless people and. We've been able to provide supplies to a number of really needy groups over here. So we, the, the effort continues with the soldiers here as I get them involved. Um, so, but basically, yeah, just contact us through the website. Um, I'll be back in the States, but we have a local contact there. They can speak with Elaine Ward, who uh, is kind of taking care of things while I'm deployed here and uh, and they can get my book on there also and i think there are some phone numbers in our email they can reach out to us if they want to get involved if they want to get involved in any of the programs and projects we have going on or they want to donate items and other supplies they can do that also
0: very worthwhile project uh, OperationGive.org is the place to go uh, this is an organization founded by paul Holton, our guest today who uh, uh, ships uh, school supplies toys medical supplies shoes clothing and other items to uh, children in war torn and devastated nations throughout the world paul holden is finishing up his uh, career in the army be back in utah in a couple of weeks i think
1: yep and uh, just as uh, the last comment we're also heavily involved in in areas where there have been natural disasters and currently we've got a huge shipment going off to tonga uh, and we've been sending some things to the Philippines after the natural natural disasters in those areas. So that's another thing we've been very involved with uh, over the years, trying to help people in need in those during those type of circumstances.
0: Okay, very good. And the book is uh, Collateral Kindness. Paul Holton, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you. I appreciate it.
0: And take join care. Uh, uh, you too. Uh, and uh, join us again tomorrow, of course. That's Access Utah for. Welcome to Wild About
2: Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Hello, this is Jim Goodwin. In a minute, I've got a critter quiz for you. But first, a word about the huge importance of riparian areas in semi-arid Utah, the second driest state in the Union. Utah State's Extension Service calls riparian zones the green ribbon of life alongside its dream. They are shadier, cooler, and moister than adjacent environments. And with a diverse mixture of plants and animals, our few riparian corridors are heavily used by wildlife for food, rest, and shelter. Okay, now for our critter quiz. What's the largest rodent in North America? Here's a hint. They can be up to 4 feet long and weigh 40 to 60 pounds. Did that do it? No? All right, this clue will. They spend much of their life in water. They have a beautiful brown coat, a broad, flat, hairless tail, and big orange buck teeth that continually grow, which is why they chew and chew and chew. Good, you've got it. It's the North American beaver, or as Utah environmental author Chip Ward calls them, the flat-tail climate hero for the restoration of damaged watersheds. Beaver are amazing aquatic engineers, second only to humans in their ability to manipulate their environment. In our nation's history, they've played a big role in literally shaping our western landscape. Joe Wheaton, Utah State wildlife and beaver expert, rightly calls the work of the beaver cheap and cheerful restoration of our heat-stressed watersheds. In the wild, these mostly nocturnal animals normally live five to ten years. Fortunately, they are rarely killed for their pelts these days. Beaver are usually monogamous. They will produce up to 10 babies. The young kits will stay home until they are two or so before they take off on their own. Beaver are master aquatic builders, the original geoengineers. They build dams to flood areas for protection from predators, for access to their food supply, and to provide safe underwater entrances to their dens. Their dams create beautiful riparian habitat for many other animals birds, fish, amphibians, insects, and plants. The flooded areas slow the flow of water and sediment downstream and raise the area water table. Aspen, cottonwood, willow, and dogwood are their preferred tree. Those trees regenerate quickly after beaver topple them. When their ponds freeze over, beaver jam smaller branches into the mud at the bottom of the pond for food storage. Beaver dams can be 5 to 10 feet high and 150 feet across. They are constructed with branches, stones, and plants and plastered together with mud. Over 1,200 beaver dams have been counted in northern Utah's Bear River Mountains alone. The world's largest beaver dam in Canada is 2,789 feet in length. That's more than nine football fields. Yes, sometimes beaver can be a nuisance to human property and activities. Often, learning to live with beaver and the many benefits they can bring can be a solution. There are simple time-tested ways to prevent flooding, but if nothing works, they can be live trapped and moved to another area. There's no need to shoot them. Be a beaver believer. Here are some organizations you can check with to learn more. Utah State Wildlife Researchers Wally McFarland and Joe Wheaton have created something called the Beaver Restoration Assessment Tool to track beaver dam building activities and their effects throughout the state. The Bear River Watershed Council in Cache Valley and Mary O'Brien with the Grand Canyon Trust in southern Utah are excellent organizations to contact. I'm Jim Goodwin for Wild About Utah. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org.
0: Commentator, Thad Box. Soon
3: after I was born, my parents lived in a tent, gathering native pecans as I rolled in the dirt. I learned to crawl in the sandy soil of our garden. I didn't have shoes until I was six. Every step was skin contact with the land. My food came from the land. Fruit and vegetables were picked from plants directly connected to soil I walked on. Our cow turned grass to milk and butter. Eggs, meat, and honey came from living animals. Energy from the sun powered a complex community of which I was a part. I was taught to plant seeds in the ground, cut weeds with a hoe, kill insects, and butcher animals. The Bible told me that God gave us dominion over all things. If rains didn't come or grasshoppers destroyed crops, I suppose God was displeased. Life was simple. In school, I found other books, other ideas, other worlds. When I was drafted into the Army, I found there were many different kinds of people with strange concepts that kept me awake at night. The world of my barefoot days was very different from the wider world I had found. I went to college on the GI Bill. Surely education and science could bring the worlds of my childhood and my new world together. An ecology course began to tie things together. Relationships and interactions within a system were more important than things. Human systems were governed by ethics. Success was not just earning money for the good things of life. We had to keep the Earth healthy enough to support generations and needs yet unknown. That's a big order for mere human beings stuck somewhere in the middle of a system that reaches out thousands of light years into our solar system and inward to bacteria, viruses, and atoms in our own body. We have to keep fellow humans from building bombs that could destroy a planet or treating diseases with antibiotics that can change the entire biology of our gut. Our role places us right in the middle of everything. This is Thad Box.
1: This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.